severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job Hello, I am Jamie McKinley and welcome to episode 34 of Just Get A Real Job, the podcast where we speak to emerging creatives and creatives alike. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who listened to our special episodes we put out last week, the birthday specials. Put a lot of work into them, so it was really nice that people listened and people enjoyed them. And, you know, it was great for us to be doing a live episode in person again. And I really, really enjoyed getting to meet Rebecca and, you know, recording those episodes in the back garden. It was good fun. And we hope to do more things like that in the future. So yeah, thank you to everyone for that. If you're a new listener as well, welcome to the podcast. Remember as well, there's a few things you can do to help support the podcast. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're able to, word of mouth is one of the best tools we have. So if you can tell five friends to listen, if you can even tell one friend to listen, that would go a long, long way in helping us grow the podcast. And also another thing you can do is support our Patreon page and there is a link to that in the show notes. Something we try and do on this podcast and something I've always made a big, big conscious effort to do is talk about mental health and be really open and honest about my failures and usually the guests are very honest about how they're feeling and their experiences in the industry and stuff and I'm not going to lie, I'm having a pretty bad day today um, in regards to mental health and stuff, I'm just not really feeling it and I recently got rejected from a job I really wanted and it's, you know, we're in a pandemic for God's sake, but I mean, it's difficult. And the reason I mention this, is I just want to get across again and again, it's really important to a lot of our listeners who are creative that you're going to have days like this. And it, when you're in those days, like I am today, it's really, really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's really hard to see that things are going to be, you know, work out okay. And that, you know, you think of yourself, you know, sometimes as a failure, but it's okay. It's not always going to be like that. And we all feel like that. And I just wanted to say that because... We do all feel like that, and that's okay. So we all have days like this. But anyway, on a more cheery note, it's time to introduce this week's episode. And we have a real, real treat lined up for you today. And on the podcast this week, we have award-winning editor, Connor Meacham. Now, Connor was really, really kind to speak to us. And I'm actually very, very grateful to Connor because we actually had some technical issues with this episode. Zoom kept crashing. I had, like, a delivery come. You know, there was just constant disruption. So I'm very, very, very grateful to Connor for staying with me and being very patient. And I really, really enjoyed our conversation. We spoke about things like My Mum, Tracy Beaker, which Connor recently edited. Connor's award-winning film, The Groundsman, his award-winning short great film I really enjoyed lots of interesting things about editing I'm very very grateful to Connor for giving his time and anyway I'll stop rambling on and I very much hope you enjoy this week's episode hi Connor nice to meet you how's it going I'm good Jamie how are you thanks for having me I'm grand it's, it's great to have you on as I was saying to you just a second ago um, you're the first editor we'd had on the podcast oh that's good that's great um, no, I'm happy to be here. I have to confess, first of all, Jamie, I'm a fanboy of the podcast because oh, it was Rebecca that I was listening to. She, her and I are in the same theatre group and that's how we got to know each other. She became a director through the group and I was just listening to it. And I thought the story of what she was saying about her gran and getting into musical theatre through her, you know, I think just a really 
interesting story and I've listened to a few of them so I need to go back to the back catalogue and listen to yeah. some of the older ones but Craig's one I thought was great as well talking about his journey as an actor from university and college so yeah yep I think it's all downhill from here but I'll do my best <laughs> no not at all there's plenty of episodes as well so thank you very much for listening I appreciate that but no this will not be downhill at all this will be very much I'm sure this will be uphill I've got lots of great things to no, talk no, about sure. so but we like to sort of start every interview by asking our guests, like, what are sort of your earliest creative memories? Do you have any, like, memories of a kid and stuff when you really got into the arts? I can remember, I can trace it back to when I was seven or eight years old. And, I mean, I grew up when DVD first came out. So I used to watch a lot of the behind the scenes. In those days, DVDs would have commentaries, making ofs, behind the scenes, deleted scenes. So things like James Bond, which I'm mad about, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, these all had making ofs. And I got to learn about directors, writers, cinematographers, composers, editors, actors. And I made the connection that the people on screen being interviewed weren't in the film. So I started to learn about all these crafts. And it was really just, I would soak all that stuff up. So I would spend hours watching documentaries and making ofs. And even when I was doing homework in school, I would just have something on in the background. And it was even for that age when I was, you know, seven or eight, a lot of people don't want to know how it's made. But you pull back the curtain. For me, that was the best part. You know, knowing that in Moonraker, the space shuttle was a model. Or in GoldenEye, the fighter jets, you know, that's forced perspective and just kind of going behind the scenes. And I kind of fell in love with it ever since. And at the time I was going to the cinema, we had a, an Odin in East Kilbride and my dad would take me there. And I think he realized that we were, my brother and I were big on movies. And I saw some of the films that are now classics. I saw them growing up like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings on a big screen for the first time. So that was, I've got really fond memories of doing that. And yeah. it got to the point, even when I was at school, if we had a, a project to do, I would do a film instead of an essay you know my teachers would let me do a film project and you know it kind of got to the point where I really wanted to do that as a job as a living and yeah that's 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 where I can trace it back to is those making ofs that I used to watch yeah, yeah. no that, that's actually interesting what you're saying about going to see like those uh, big films when you were younger because I remember like seen Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter in the cinema as well and like they were always just very exciting things to go and get to see when I saw Lord of the Rings that was the first time I'd ever seen a cliffhanger so I'd never known the, I didn't know the story. I didn't know the books or that it was based on a book even. So I went to see it, you know, kind of green to the whole story. And then that final shot where Frodo and Sam are walking towards Mordor and it dips to black and it says directed by Peter Jackson. I thought, is that it? So I'd know, I thought the story was going to finish there, but yeah, so I had to wait, wait a year. Yeah, no, I, you know, something I really liked as well, what you said was about how you, you looked at the behind the scenes things and you thought none of these people are in the movie. That's interesting. So I feel like a lot of people don't think about when you're that age, like the people behind the camera. Like I, I certainly didn't really think about that till a bit older, I don't think. So I found that even interesting. Young, yeah, even from a young age, when I looked at Bond, you know, I knew who Cubby Broccoli was. He was the producer. Michael Wilson was the writer. Who the composers were, who John Barry was, who Ken Adam was. And I made all these connections and I would start to see the same names on different films. And then I, you know, I looked at people who inspired me and I kind of built up a list of people who I wanted to, to speak to eventually. And people, yeah. I'm very lucky that I've got to meet some of these people. My agent has some of the Bond crew, some of the Bond heads of department on their books. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a pipe dream in a way. But yeah, there is that kind of mystery and there's a lot of people who work behind the scenes. And I think it's great with things like these, we get to talk about those jobs. And I think one thing about editing is it's, it's quite, it's still misunderstood, but I think more and more people are starting to talk about the process and what it involves and what it's about. Interestingly, yeah. it's the one discipline in film that began with filmmaking. Yeah. So there's no other precedent for editing. So if you look at cinematography, that can be traced back to paintings. If you look at production design, that can go back to theatre. Performance goes back to you know the beginning of time almost. Writing goes to books and playwrights and, and novels. But editing begins with film. 
you know, that's that's what it was born. So it's quite a new art form. And it's interesting yeah. how I've looked into this, how our brain seems to make sense of editing. There's a kind of fun story when film was first born. There was a filmmaker who is an experiment. He put a shot of a cat on a cinema screen. So it was a cat sitting on a table in a wide shot. Then he had a shot next to it of the cat in close up. So he thought the audience is going to freak. They're going to think this cat is something got 10 times bigger. But actually the audience accepted that it was just a close up. We'd moved in closer to that shot. So it's interesting how our brain works when it comes to editing, because when we watch a scene, we're in a scene, we're in a space, we see it from a different angle. We don't think, oh, you know, where are we now? We just make the connection that we're in a different part of the room. Yeah. So yeah, it's really, there's a kind of artistic side, but there's also a really technical side to it as well. No, I'm absolutely I love that. Fascinated by it. Yeah. No, it is really interesting. And I, I love doing this podcast because I, I love that I get to speak to all the different areas of the industry. And like, I don't know a lot about editing. So I'm actually was really excited to speak to you today, Connor, about it. And I know we're going to get into the editing stuff as we go on. But I love what you said about like that hadn't started, you know, because it did start with filmmaking. I'd never thought about it like that before. Yeah, sure. One of my favorite things to do growing up was I got my first video camera when I was 12 and it was still a tape in those days. But usually what I would do is I would shoot in camera, which meant I would do the edits in the camera. So I would film my friends, you know, behind one shoulder, then I would move across to their close up, move back. So I didn't have any edit software at the time. But for me, the favorite part, the best part was coming home, plugging into the TV and watching the film, actually see it come together. Filming it was okay. It was good fun, but it wasn't, you know, the most exciting part for me. It was actually seeing it put together and it making sense as a story. And I used to, once I got my first piece of editing software, when I was maybe 12 or 13, I used to edit myself into movies. So I would sit in my dad's car, the steering wheel, and I'd make a big left turn. Then I would cut in something from Fast and Furious. So like me going off a cliff or my brother's being blown up, you know, that sort of thing. So that, that I would spend hours in front of my computer with this software, just playing with things, just making a short film and spend weeks on it, just adding effects, adding music, adding titles, playing around with the structure, messing around with it. And really it's just what I do now is an extension of that, but that's where it all began is, you know, when I was 12 or 13, you know, playing with the software. No, it sounds like from a very young age, you've always been like very, very fascinated and very like, there's so much detail in what you're doing there as well. So you're, you're really going all in to, it sounds like from a young age. Yeah, absolutely. I love movies and I say movies specifically because I think I've got the cinema diet of like a 13 year old. So I love kind of big blockbusters, big action films. And, you know, that's where my love of it comes from, is being in the cinema, seeing those big movies on a Friday night with your friends, with the popcorn, with the nachos, with the drinks. Yeah. I'm just having a great time. And it's kind of, everything's sort of stemmed from that, I would say. Yeah. But, uh, I, editing is it's all about spending hours in front of the computer with the material and you can do anything with it. It's got limitless potential. And, you know, there's, especially in things like documentary where there's no script, you can mess around with a film. You can put the beginning at the end, the middle at the start. It's a blank canvas so you can have as much fun as you like with it. So that's it's yeah. the kind of endless possibility of editing that I really respond to. Yeah, no, definitely. And I can tell from your posters behind you that you love blockbusters. You've got a very nice selection of posters there. Yeah, there's Avatar, Skyfall, Indiana Jones, No Time to Die, which is still isn't out yet, but maybe yeah. by the time the podcast is out, people will have seen it by now. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> What's it now, October again or something? <laughs> yeah, October, I think this year. Well, let's see. Avatar, interestingly, is a really specific moment in my life. I remember when I saw it, I felt like I was seeing something really special. And that's a kind of pivotal moment in my life when I thought that's what I want to do. When I saw that movie on the big screen with James Cameron, I'm a big James Cameron fan. It's his pursuit of excellence that I really like. It's that always pushing the boundaries, always pushing the envelope, making the film the best it can possibly be. That's what inspires me. And that's kind of where my work ethic comes from. Seeing that film, seeing the technology, seeing the story and feeling the audience really respond to it and be in that moment. When Jake flies on his banshee for the first time, I'm kind of obsessed with the movie, so I know it inside out. But... <laughs> Seeing those moments with an audience 
I thought if I can do that, if I can make movies like that, that's exactly what I want to do. So Avatar is a really pivotal moment, pivotal experience in my life, I would say. No, that's, that's a good film as well. It's, it's an interesting one from an editing point of view as well. Just in terms of cinema, actually, it's an interesting film. Uh, but just to actually just want to quickly say about No Time to Die, that was actually, I was at Glasgow Film Festival when it got cancelled. I think when it first got cancelled and COVID was just coming, it was like the last normal thing I did was the Glasgow Film Festival 2020. And it was like weird week when like all the news was coming through, like what was happening. And I just remember I was actually at a talk the, the minute uh, James Bond got cancelled with... Um, forgotten his name from submarine what is his name i love this person as well oh craig uh, roberts craig roberts yes i feel terrible yeah. i actually bumped into him in the bathroom and i, I about freaked out submarine's one of my favorite films and i saw this <laughs> i was just in the bathroom and craig roberts yeah. it's like oh my god it's craig you know when you see someone you've seen on screen so many times in real life it's a surreal experience and i awkwardly smiled at him. i'm like why am i smiling at this guy he's just in a bathroom like a normal person but, so after you got out of jail you found out no time to die was cancelled yes uh, basically but we're, what my point was that we were watching him do a talk and the moment during the talk the news came it had been postponed so it was a shock to like the people at glasgow film festival on the stage and stuff so i think the whole room was sort of like oh this is weird so that, that was my point my phone started going crazy like everyone was texting me saying do you know no time to die has been cancelled it was kind of the first big movie news <laughs> yeah to be affected by covid and it was so close it was like a week away from being released because i think i'd my tickets all booked and it was almost like christmas eve and christmas is cancelled the next day and it's been cancelled like three or four times but i think now we're finally gotten getting to the point where we will see it and it's not even the longest gap between films and the longest gap is between license to kill and goldeneye that was about six and a half years so we're not quite there yet but i think it's i think it's approaching it yeah yeah well no that that we'll, we'll talk more about the film stuff in a minute but another question we sort of ask everyone is how is where you're from had a sort of influence on your creative career so far well i grew up in east Kilbride, which is a kind of small town maybe 30 minutes from glasgow really quite a straightforward town it's got shopping center big cinema schools you know but what was great was it's got these great locations it's got parks it's got forests it's got fields it's got i mean in a forest you can make anything you can make a sci-fi you can make a historical yeah. epic you can do like an indiana jones or a short film or whatever you like and i would spend summers i got friends who were they were into films as well filmmaking and acting and performance so we would make films all through the summer interestingly it was never original stuff it was always sequels and reboots so i would always do like a terminator reboot or <laughs> you know a jason bourne spinoff or like a bond tribute kind of thing so we would spend, you know, hours just making things, getting a camera. And I'd, one of my friends was a kind of free runner. He was into parkour and stuff. So we would do like, you know, these crazy chase sequences and, you know, seeing it all come together again was the best part for me. Yeah. Great, great locations. And, you know, it was a great place to grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and East Kilbride's similar to where I'm from, Glen Ross, because they're both new towns. So they're similar mm. architecture. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of roundabouts in East Kilbride as well. Yeah, this is exactly, that's what I think it's infamous for is all the roundabouts. So yeah. yeah, doing your driving test there is quite interesting because it's it's a tough shift to do. But yeah, I was lucky I had a lot of friends who were into filmmaking and were up for giving it a go. So we made, I've got hours and hours of films we made and it's a lot of it's not so great, but it was just you know, really good fun. To, to do together it, it was fun at that age to like when you love when you have friends around you at a young age that are into being creative with you and it, you're just doing it for the fun of it at that age there's no like you're not thinking like i'm going to make this and it's going to you know launch something it's just all for the pure love of it isn't it yeah and even then i, I wasn't specifically focused on the editing per se i was more interested in directing at the time mm -hmm. but, but also just being the cameraman doing the sound adding the music adding the effects i was kind of looking to do everything and things like family events I would make films for them. I did a couple, filmed a couple of weddings and, you know, just any kind of experience I could get. We did a show called Eurobeat, 
which was with the theatre club, which is a kind of Eurovision song contest parody. And there was in the theatre group, we had a, the plan was we're going to have a live link so the audience could vote during the interval. And then we'd have the results in the second half. So we created backstage this kind of live link. So we'd be going to different countries. Mm. So it was actually just one camera with a green screen. <laughs> so we would go to Ireland and Russia and Germany. But I got to operate the camera. So even then I was just, you know, loving doing the yeah. frames and taking charge of the camera. And I was really lucky because two of the guys, Paul and Martin, who work, who were in the theatre company, they have their own corporate events company. So they were the kind of first guys to give me my first industry job, which I'm really grateful for. But they let me, you know, take charge of the camera and stuff, which was... Yeah. Really good, really good fun. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Well, I'm about to get into sort of what you did at university and your, your sort of journey into being an, a professional editor and stuff in a minute. But first, I just wanted to ask you if you have a favourite word or phrase from East Kilbride and where you're from. It can be from Scotland as well, if it's easier. I don't think we can claim to have invented any words <laughs> in East Kilbride. But one of my favourites, I've got a bad habit of doing this, but I love still games. So see when oh, me too. Jack and Victor, yeah, whenever Jack and Victor are going to the Klansman, Bobby always does his lines, but the first thing he says is he goes, ho, ho. Look at us. <laughs> yeah. So whenever I meet people, I, I have this bad habit of going, ho, ho. But yeah, when I moved to England to go to film school, I was accused of rolling my R's a lot. Apparently that's a Scottish thing is we roll it our R's. very much is. So interestingly, there's guys from all, all across the world. You're so many different accents and exotic sounds, but I was the hardest to understand apparently. So <laughs> yeah, if I can have... If you can let me have a sound effect, that was probably the thing I'd use that kind of started when I was young watching Still Game and East Kilbride, yeah. We're, we're putting that in as an interlude, Connor. It's going in. Okay, we're calling it, okay. The sound effect, okay. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Connor, so you just sort of touched on there, but you moved down to London, right, to do your under... That Was that your master's you did in London? That was my master's, yeah. Yeah. So first you did an undergrad, which was at the Royal Conservatory, you did digital film and television, right? That's right. So towards the end of, I was in fifth year at the time and I started looking at university courses and I was getting quite frustrated because at the time there weren't many practical courses. There were some that had a kind of major theory element to them. And then in your third year or fourth year, you might make a film or you could do an essay about film. And it wasn't quite what I was looking for. So it felt like it got to the last moment when I saw the Royal Conservatory of Scotland's course called Digital Film and Television. At the time it was the RSAMD. I went to meet, I was in fifth year at the time, but I went to meet one of the lecturers, Andy, and we kind of developed a relationship, you know, over the course of the year, I would email him and say what I'd been up to, what I was working on, volunteer projects and things. He would look at some films I'd made. So it got to the point when I was in sixth year, when I did my interview, he knew me. So there's already been a relationship and it helped at the interview. So, yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic experience. I look back now and I've got really fond memories of it. It was three years, almost 90% practical with a kind of 10% theory element that was just as important, I felt. And the way the course was structured was, in the first and second year, you would do all different departments. You would do camera, lighting, sound, directing, writing, producing. You would have a kind of taster of each. And it got to the point in third year, you would specialize. You would pick a department. And at the end of the course, everyone would make a graduation film. Or we made three at the time, um, sort of three big graduation projects. And whichever specialism you had, that would be your department. Mm -hmm. So if you specialized in cinematography, you would shoot one. If you specialize in editing, you would cut one. So yeah, it's strange because I learned so much there. I don't remember not knowing these things because it was so ingrained in us at RCS that it's it's become second nature now. Things like how to work a camera, how to work some edit software. There was a real broad range of students. So some people who had some industry experience and some people who had great ideas, they were writers, but they didn't know how to work a camera. I kind of mix and a lot of people in between. So yeah, it was really good because it was only 13 of us on the course. So it was quite an intimate group. Amazing. And, you know, the conservatory was also quite small, but you had access to actors and writers and theatre designers and musicians. You could have a composer. You could, you know, find your actors there. You could 
you know, do all sorts. So it was a really kind of melting pot of different creative people, which was really nice. Yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds very good and very exciting. And you speak about those people that can't use a camera. I definitely fall into that category. I've, I've always wanted to be good at filmmaking, but I just suck at the technical aspect of it. I actually broke a camera in my undergrad, which is like a lot of my friends still bring up. I didn't mean to. I just I twisted it off the tripod and it, yeah, snapped the thing wasn't very popular with the lectures for about two or three months after that but as you can imagine oh dear. <laughs> no, well we would, we would spend days just dismantling the kit and things and you know playing around with it and just shooting yeah. like a film noir or shooting a musical or you know just messing around and i don't like i don't know how to work a camera we got to shoot on the reds we shot our grad films on the red epic which is a kind of cinema style camera you could shoot in 4k but we had to learn all that i mean that was part of the course yeah. you know they like to have a different mix of people with different levels of experience because then the films that you make are much more interesting that way yeah. Because people don't bring different skills to the table. Definitely. Definitely somebody did that when I knew that, because a lot of my friends did the MA film course when I was doing my screenwriting degree. And they, you know, they got to learn all that amazing stuff and they were really good. But the undergrad I did was very theory based. So like we only did 10% of practical stuff. So no one just had that sort of extra knowledge, if that makes sense. So I probably shouldn't have even been allowed to touch the camera. So uh, that's had, my excuse. We had a theory module called Crafting Context, which was about putting what we, the practical things and, you know, the, discussing where they came from so where did production design come from where did editing come from where did composing come from mm. looking at kind of early cinema and bringing it all almost to the present day and we had a viewing list of films that we watched in the cinema as part of our course and we would do blogs we'd write about them not just if they were good or bad but what we enjoyed what we responded mm -hmm. to i remember that was the first time i saw blade runner oh, and you know seeing that film just absolutely floored me it was nine o'clock on like a wednesday morning but i was just hooked and at the end i was almost in bits that final speech with um do you know the film have you seen it yeah i know the film yeah i actually really like the second one i really like 20 yeah 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 excellent yeah it's great the tears and rain speech you know hearing oh, that for the first time yeah. just thinking i feel like i've seen this is awesome that like, this is great cinema and yeah. it was the one i just wanted to talk about it the rest of the week it was just kind of stayed with me i love ridley scott for that because he's great at kind of building worlds and yeah you know his films always seem to leave an impression so yeah i mean seeing things like that and the godfather and citizen kane and it's important to look back at these films and realize what you're doing where it comes from absolutely um, yeah no the the tears and like i know in 20 in blade runner 2049 the the soundtrack is one of my favorite soundtracks and from recent times i love the the actual score of tears and rain like there's a, a such a nice little piece of music and it makes me like quite sad every time i hear it so oh, i love that piece of music I went to the secret cinema for Blade Runner a couple of years ago. Oh, amazing. Which is in London. They did the venue up like Los Angeles and it was pouring mm. rain and you could walk about and meet the characters and meet Tyrell and meet Rachel and have some noodles. So, and then you watch the film, obviously. But it was, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That does sound really good. I'm jealous that you got to do that. <laughs> no, it was great. It was great fun. Yeah. yeah. So, Connor, you finish your degree at the Conservatory and you obviously do The Groundsman, which I just watched before this interview and I really, really enjoyed. And I hope people can go away and watch it after listening to this. But that kind of launched your career in a way, didn't it? The Groundsman. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's had a really long lifespan for a short film. We made it maybe eight years ago, but I still meet people who've seen it, you know, in interviews and things. And they've, you know, they've, they've brought it up, which is really nice. When I did that, I was in second year at RCS. 
And that was one of the graduation films in third year. So I was brought up to work on it a year early, basically. So we worked on it. And then a year later, it was nominated for the BAFTA New Talent Award. And it won Best Editor and Best Fiction. So I, I got my first TV job off the back of that. It was a TV show called The Spartacle Mystery. Yeah, so I still meet people who have seen The Groundsman. It's had a really long lifespan for a short film, which is a really nice surprise. But I worked on that when I was at RCS. And that was nominated for the BAFTA New Talent Award for Best Editor and Best Fiction. So it won, won both. And that got me my first TV job. It was a show called The Spartacle Mystery, which was shot in Belfast. So before I finished my degree, I went to Belfast to work on the show. So I had about six months left of my course, which was a bit mad because it was my first industry oh, job. Wow. So I was in a post house and Game of Thrones was being cut upstairs. So <laughs> it was kind of one of these sort of whirlwind experiences. But that, that was me in a cutting room when I was 21, kind of in the chair as an editor. So it was, you know, it was a really good training ground and really good experience and sort of just you know, not thinking about it too much, just going on instinct. What I learned on the groundsman, just kind of taking that to the TV show. It was a CBBC show. So third series, it's quite an ambitious show, kind of sci-fi element to it. But after that, I did think about NFTS. That was something I, th I wanted to look into. And I was sort of torn between, I was, I was, I'm working in TV. I've got the first credit. Do I want to go down that path or do I want to go back into education? But I saw the NFTS as like an investment, a two-year investment. You're taking yeah. time out essentially, but it's a chance to really perfect and work on your craft and specialize in yeah. editing. RCS is a kind of strange relationship with the NFTS. It's almost like it was almost like a conveyor belt because a lot of graduates have gone on to study at the NFTS. Mm. There's no official partnership, but we RCS sort of modeled their course on NFTS. So it's a kind of natural step in a way, in a strange way. Yeah. So yeah, that's in the end, I, I, went, I applied to the course and when I went down there, there's a kind of selection workshop where it's part of your interview process where they get you to cut a documentary, a drama, and a kind of experimental piece. And it was just great meeting people and meeting people who were applying to the course and talking about films and talking about different directors and filmmakers and editors and films we like. And I felt this is the kind of place I want to be. So yeah, I got in and then I started in 2016 and I was there for two years. That sounds amazing. I mean, that is like an amazing union. I, I just couldn't afford to go there, to be honest, to do my, and I wouldn't have got in, if perfectly honest, I probably wouldn't have got in, but um, I just don't think I could have afforded to move to London, but it is a great school and I know of a lot of people that have went there and had a great experience. So it sounds very interesting. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're really supportive of people who, I mean, a lot of people can't afford the course. I mean, I was, you know, I was part of that. So they do look at sponsorships and scholarships. Mm -hmm. So they really support the students because it's quite expensive, but yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's worth it for the training that you get. It's outside of London, so it's kind of in a little village called Beaconsfield, so it feels like the middle of nowhere. But it's just a fantastic place to be. It almost felt like a working film studio. Yeah. Because in the same place, you've got your directors, you've got the visual effects people, you've got the composers, the sound designers, the editors. And again, it's quite a small university, so there's maybe only 200 people there at the time. So everyone knows each other. Everyone knows what everyone's working on. There's a kind of family atmosphere in a way. So it means that if you're working on a scene and you want to chat to the composer, you can go across the way and speak to them, show them a cut. Or if you want to bring in the sound designer or the director, you can do that, no problem. So, I mean, we had these fantastic masterclasses. We had like Kenneth Branagh and Danny Boyle and David Fincher came in. Oh my and, God, wow. You know, it's a really, Taika Waititi came in. Oh, it's a really- Connor, stop it, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just, it's like mentioning some of my heroes there. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah, we got to see Thor maybe a week or so before it came out with Taika doing a masterclass after oh, it. Oh, wow. So- it's a really intimate setting as well. I mean, it's not a PR, you know, Q&A. It's more about talking about the process and being honest and open about mm -hmm. it, which people, the students, we really appreciated. And things like we got to edit. We brought in the editor from Sherlock. So we got to cut a scene from Sherlock mm -hmm. um, as an exercise. And Stephen Moffat came in to watch it and give oh, notes brilliant. and feedback. So things like that, just having the access to those tutors and everyone and all the tutors at the school are working in the industry. 
you know, so they know what's up and coming and they've got relevant experience and you work on documentary and animation and fiction. So it's a really, yeah, it was a fantastic experience overall. And I made some great contacts. It's a chance to network and meet people and like-minded people. And, you know, you build a kind of network of, um, you kind of create a team, you know, you've got directors and producers who call on you for work. So that's, yeah, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. And I'm sure you've taken so much from that into like what you do now as well. So that, that sounds Honestly, I'm just so jealous of they got to have masterclass all those amazing people. I was gonna have a geek about it because I would take my Blu-rays down to get signed, and <laughs> you know, they would do the masterclass, and I'd be at the door at the end of it saying, "Do you fancy signing this?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure, okay." Yeah. So I was like, definitely. Well, you know, one of the the positives of COVID and what's come out of it is a lot of these masterclasses have moved online, so a lot of them are now people have access to them from wherever they are in the world. So. You know, we were really lucky in my master's last year, we got to do a masterclass with Sam Mendes and Kirsty Cairns from 1917. And we would never have got that if COVID hadn't been a thing. But we actually got to take part in that on Zoom and it was it was amazing. Yeah, Christy's a graduate from RCS and NITS. I know, she is, yeah, she is. And she's fantastic. Do you, do you know? Yeah, she's, I don't know her, but she was a few years ahead of me, but she's, I've met her once and she's really nice. She's fantastic and really kind. And, you know, she gave me some advice and things. So it's proof that it can happen. I mean, she's from... In a similar town to me so yeah you know a lot of there's a few scots who i look up to who have gone on and you know they're, they're kind of top of the game in the industry in different departments so it's proof that it can be done yeah you know, composers and first ad's and things like that oh, she's so, certainly someone i look up to she's an amazing screenwriter absolutely i mean 1917 is fantastic isn't it? i love it's it i loved it yeah really good um one of the other things about nfts i really enjoyed it was terrifying at the same time was we would make the films and part of the process was we would all go into the cinema and watch each other's cuts so mm. normally the, there was eight students on each course. So there'd be eight directors, eight producers, eight writers, eight editors, etc. You multiply that in a cinema, you've got like 50, 60 people watching your cut, watching your films. So it's really about putting yourself out there and getting feedback and responding to it. It's quite an intimidating experience, but it's really a really good part of the process. So it's, yeah, it can be terrifying, but it's something you should do is, you know, the film in rough, quite rough forms and all the way through to the finished cut, but people got to see the process and how it evolved. That sounds brilliant. That's really interesting. Hello, it's Jamie and Elliot here. I hope you're enjoying today's episode of Just Get A Real Job. I just wanted to remind you guys that if you're enjoying the podcast, word of mouth is the best way for us to grow. So please, if you can, share us on social media, tell your friends and family to listen. You can also support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your help. So anything you can do to help us grow this project is very much appreciated. We do appreciate your support as always. And if you would like to contribute or donate to our podcast, we also have a Patreon page where you could donate as little as much as you wish. You can access this by going to www.patreon.com slash just get a real job so thank you very much again for all your support and you can also find a link to the patreon page in the show notes but anyway now back to today's show right so connor you finish your time at the film school and you get a job at river city and this is a quite an amazing story actually because you have been, you'd said you'd watched the show for like nine years and you just got in touch with the producer there and, and sort of ended up working as an editor on it yeah, so I was coming towards the end of my two years at film school. And I heard word that they were looking for editors for River City because at the time there was a kind of national shortage of editors in Scotland. So I emailed the producer and said, can I come and meet with you? I'm Glasgow-based. Let's have a chat. So I went to meet Kieran Hannigan, the exec producer, and I started off by saying to him, you know, I watched the show. I've watched it for maybe seven or eight years because I used to be an extra in it. So wow. I was in a background artist thing. And just by doing that, I kind of got into the show and the storylines and the characters. 
So I said to him, look, I know the show, I know the characters, I know the house style. And he asked me, you know, who are your favourites? Why do you think the show's successful? And I just, you know, I told him what I thought and who I liked and what kind of storylines I enjoyed. And he said, okay, well, can you start next week? I said, well, I still have to graduate first. So <laughs> he said, okay, all right, we'll do that first thing, come and see us. So almost like maybe a week after graduating, I was in River City doing an episode, doing two episodes. Oh, wow. Um, so it was kind of baptism of fire. I mean, it's such a fast paced show. The turnaround is really intense. Normally it takes two or well, three weeks to shoot it, assemble it and lock it, picture lock it. Now, normally for a, that's for two hours of TV. For normally for a show like that, it could take five or six weeks. So the turnaround is much faster and everyone has to be on their A-game, like the actors, the camera crew, the editors. So it was a real kind of learning experience. And I really, I'm really grateful to Kieran for taking the chance. And in the end, I did maybe 16, 16 hours, 16 episodes. Wow. But even things like the actors, they have to be on the ball and they can just turn it on and off their performance. So in a day, they'll have maybe normally on a show like that, you would have four or five scenes to cut. I would have maybe 10, 11 or 12. So just the pace and the turnaround is unlike anything I've done. And there's even the seasoned editors who've said, you know, it's quite, it's, it's rough, but it's, it's really good. It's a really good training ground, I would say, for everyone, for actors. And you met, Kieran hired a lot of NFTS directors. So I got to meet people from maybe a few years ago and we became contacts and people to network with. So yeah, it was a really good, really good experience for me. How, how long were you with Forever City for? How many years did you spend there? Well, I was freelance, but I was maybe on and off for two years just mm-hmm. coming in and doing different episodes. But I had every sort of storyline. So we had, in an episode, you can have a really dramatic storyline where someone confesses to a murder or someone's, you know, really had a really traumatic experience. But then you have two scenes later, you have a comedy thing with, <laughs> you know, Bob and Angus. So you have this kind of mixed where in a day you'll be doing lots of different scenes. You'll have really long dialogue scenes. You'll have kind of physical set pieces. You'll have comedy moments. You'll bring in new characters saying goodbye to old ones. So yeah, two years on and off. I got to do my first ever explosion, which was really cool. Oh, wow. I imagine just as like a, from pure technical level, you mu- it must have been such a great way to learn on the job as well, because you're doing all these different type of things and you're getting to sort of learn about yourself as an editor as well. So that must have been amazing. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't have time to think. <laughs> you don't have time to, you know, in, in film school, the difference is in film school, you might have six weeks to make a 15 minute film mm. where you can sit and have these, you know, you know, is this shot going to work? Is it making sense? What are the motivations? Who's seen as it? You know, all these things you normally think about on River City, you don't have time. You just have to kind of get started and get cracking. But it teaches you to have a gut instinct as an editor mm. to not think about it too much, just to go on what you what feels right. And it was, again, just having the chance to do so many different types of scenes, comedy, drama, romance, the kind of bigger scenes with the explosions, with the action. There's not really any scene we didn't do, we didn't cover. So, you know, that that is what I'm really grateful for. And again, it teaches you to have that, that gut instinct and to really not think about it too much, just trust your instincts. Yeah. And do you think that's an essential part of being an editor? Sure. I think everyone has, as an editor, everyone has an internal rhythm. I mean, I know that when I watch the rushes, when I watch the material coming in, I've got a feeling of how it should be cut. And that's that's only done by learning, by doing, by having the experience, by being in the chair and spending those hours working on a scene. Sometimes you have to wrestle with a scene because it takes a bit longer. You're not quite sure what the rhythm is. You're not quite sure how it should be cut together. Other times it's quite straightforward. So yeah, that's uh, these are things that you can't really be taught. It's about how you see the scene, how you want to cut it. Yeah. Um, and for me, that comes from watching a lot of films and knowing when a scene feels right, when it feels like a film, when it feels like it's it's starting to talk back to you and it's hitting the emotional moments and it's hitting the right beats in the scene that you want it to. And it makes sense. It has a beginning, middle and end. It's got a purpose. It's got a function. So yeah, that's River City. I can trace a lot of it back to that. 
I would say. Yeah, definitely. So you were working freelances, obviously, not just in River City. So were you doing, were you doing anything else at that point? Were you working on a, quite a few shows? or? Yeah, it was almost like I would do River City, then do a short film, almost like a palate cleanser, just to kind of do something <laughs> different, you know, kind of flex a different muscle or do a documentary where the demands of it are a little bit different. But yeah, River City was kind of keeping me busy for those two years when I was going back and forth between it. I spent most of 2018, 2019 on it. So it's, it's quite fun to, to, as a freelancer, you can go between different types of jobs and you can pick and choose the work that you do. Maybe not when you're starting out, you have your, you want to make money and pay the rent and things and get good credits and meet, meet people. But it gives you that choice to sort of go between and pick the things you enjoy doing. Yeah, no, that sounds very interesting. Connor, I just actually was wondering, I was work for you during the lockdown and during COVID and stuff, because I imagine for editors, you can still kind of work because you're working from home. So I imagine there was quite a lot to do in that time. Yeah, it's got quite a similar setup, really. We're doing the same thing. We're working from home. We're working with our PCs. I was quite lucky that I was working on a, a project towards the beginning of lockdown that sort of slowed down because we couldn't be in the same room together. Mm. So things took a bit longer. The post-production slowed down a bit. But it meant I had work and I had something to do. I've been quite fortunate that I've been working fairly non-stop through lockdown. Yeah. Just because the only difference is the one thing I miss is having the director with you because having the director in the room, you can have those conversations and you can really get a sense of how they feel the film is working and how they're responding to it. When you're working over Zoom, you're not quite getting that experience. You can yeah. see their facial expression, but actually having them in the room, you can kind of feel if a scene is working or not. That's the one thing I miss the most, I would say, is being in the room together, working on yeah. it. Yeah. It's a little yeah, bit different yeah. over over a screen. Yeah, it's been fairly. It's I've been really lucky to have work. Tracy Beaker was shot in lockdown. The oh, whole nice. thing. So yeah, it's been it's been crazy, but it's good. And I think things are starting to pick up finally in terms of work. So yeah. we should be back in edit suite fairly soon. So is that what your next project is working on, Tracy Beaker? Or have you already been working on it? No, I finished it. So we made that in from maybe September to December last year it was what it was on a job i've been working with a director called john mckay john and i made the demon head master together it was the reboot okay. of the 90s show mm-hmm. and we've been looking at another project coming up and then he called me to say that tracy beaker was going to be made and he was directing it and would i be interested and i said absolutely because i used to watch the original show growing up me too i loved it it's great wasn't it, it was fantastic. To talk to you about this yeah yeah so i used to watch it coming home from school every single day so to bring it back, I mean, it was Danny Harmer was coming back. It was yeah. 30 years since the original show. So it was kind of an anniversary event. So yeah, we made it. I think it was it was shot in Manchester almost while we were between lockdowns. So they, I think we were in the tier system then. Mm. I cut it from my bedroom. I worked on it from home. So I used to roll out of bed and just cut the scenes, which was good fun. But uh, it was almost like we took a deep breath and just worked through it as quickly as possible because it was everyone was staying in hotels. It was all COVID secure. Everyone was safe, just trying to get it done and everything Everything went fine, which was which was great. It was a really good show. We made it as a 90-minute feature film, oh, as a 90-minute TV movie. And to to bring all the characters back, to bring Justine back. I know, I haven't actually back. watched it yet, and I really want to. I have saw all the t- tweets and stuff. I'm going to watch it soon. It's really good fun. Check it out. I mean, we were really surprised because in the week building up to its release, the millennials got it. People on Twitter yeah. were talking about it, and it suddenly blew up. It had like a million views, the trailer. And Danny was talking about it on TV shows. So there was a real kind of audience excitement mm-hmm. for it. And we knew that people who knew the books... And the show would watch it. You know, we we hoped they would they would want to see it. But then all these people who said, "I grew up with it. I'm 30 years old. I'm going to watch it." Yeah. And we made it for a kind of it's made for a young audience. But we want people who grew up with the show who've got kids now to watch it. You know, with their kids. So yeah. And what was really special about it was it was quite ambitious in its storytelling for children's because we speak. And Tracy's a single parent, so we talk about being a single parent, 
Justine it's mentioned that she can't have children there's a mental health in the third part of the film Tracy basically has depression so she has a kind of mental health episode I know Danny was quite keen to talk about that and have a conversation about mental health yeah. surrounding the show and the big thing for me as well we has we had a gay wedding in the finale I don't want to spoil it but okay I'll spoil it because um it's already out but <laughs> if, you, um, if you want to watch this listeners and you don't want to hear the ending skip forward 30 seconds all right okay so Cam, who's Tracy's foster mother, she gets married to a woman, which was, in the books, Cam was always gay. She was quite clearly gay. But at the time, because of Section 28, that couldn't be shown on screen because it was illegal. So she married in the, one of the earlier series, she married a man, which was kind of a disservice to the character. But bringing it back, there's a scene where, in the show, Tracy meets one of her friends from the care homes that's grown up. Sean, he's become a famous footballer. He's really successful, and he takes Tracy in and her daughter. And they have this relationship. And at the very end, they've broken up, but you think they're going to get back together. And we see the shot of a church and you think, oh my God, she's taking him back. But actually it's Cam's getting married to Tracy's daughter's teacher, which has been a storyline we've kind of threaded through the, the show. Oh, nice. So to have, I mean, to have a gay wedding on CBBC was a big thing, a big step. And people really responded to it. And, you know, it was, it was people were really happy to see that on screen. Um, so to be a part of that was something quite special. That sounds amazing. And it must have been amazing for you, like getting to work on something you watched when you used to come in from school, like all these mm. years later. Because I mean, yeah, that, that must be amazing. Well, it's full of Easter eggs and references to old characters. And we had this idea that when Tracy meets Justine for the first time, we should have this kind of montage of the two of them to remind people of their history together. So we have this kind of crazy kind of catch up of Tracy eating the worms and Justin and Tracy having eyes, you know, face off with each other. So all that stuff was just really good fun and bringing it back and some Easter eggs for the fans. And we had to make sure it was its own thing. It was its own show and it worked as a movie on its own, its own terms. But there's enough in there for people to appreciate people who know the show growing up. There's, there's lots in there for them to enjoy. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to watching this soon. So maybe, maybe squeeze the end of the weekend if I have time. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, it's, it's good fun. <laughs> definitely. I dare you to eat a Remember when Tracy B comes from the dumping ground? And that is how I won the dare game. So I said to Justine Littlewood, you can just bog off! Tracy Beaker is my mum. We're a team. Love you! We've got the best life. But mum has always had big dreams. Tracy Beaker? Well, Connor, I've got kind of some fun questions, which are kind of more to just do with editing as a craft, just to ask you, for the listeners and for anyone who maybe is interested in Edmonton or wants to get to know a bit more about it. But so my first sort of question is, I just wonder if you would be okay maybe just talking about what the editor's role with an actor is. So how, how do you work with actors as an editor? Yeah, so it's quite an intimate relationship with actors, but in a strange way, it's one-sided. So for the actors out there who are listening, you know, as an editor, I'm working with you every single day. So I'm working with your performance. So in a strange way, we know your tics and how you move and how you breathe and the difference is, I guess, in theatre as an actor, when you walk on stage, you're in charge of the performance for 90 minutes mm. or two hours. You take control of that performance. When it comes to filmmaking, it's a little bit different. Our job is to take your performance and shape it, restructure it slightly, make it the best it can possibly be, bring out the best performance in you. But we can do things like change. We can add pauses. We can take pauses away. We can put breaths in. We can change words. We can change syllables almost when it comes to cutting dialogue. So it's a really kind of intimate partnership. I've had strange situations where I've been in lifts on a production and I've met the actor and I've like, oh, hi, how's it going? How are you doing? And he has no idea who I am. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so yeah, those, are those kind of strange experiences. But yeah, I mean, I remember we watched Edit Fest a couple of years ago. We had one of the editors from Finding Dory. 
Oh, and wow. she was talking to us about how she cut performance and she played a line of dialogue and she said, just for you, I'm going to demonstrate how much we do. So she put a beep every single time they change something like a syllable or a breath or a word. And she played a line of dialogue and it was like beep, 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 beep. And that was how much they changed just one single sentence. You know, they'd taken a syllable from here, a word from there, a breath from here and kind of restructured that line of dialogue. So our job is to make your performance the best it can be. It's one of my favorite parts is cutting a performance, you know, yeah. that together. No, that's really interesting. And I think some of our, and we have quite a few actors that listen to the podcast. So I think they'll find this really interesting as well. So thanks for answering that. Well, another one just sort of moving on from that is similar. I just sort of wondered, you kind of touched on that already, but how does an editor's relationship with a director sort of function? How does that work? Well, it's a partnership. It's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, again, it's another intimate one. It's the ideal collaboration is one where you can be honest with each other and open and honest And you can have those frank conversations about the film, talk about what's not working, talk about what needs work. But our job at the end of the day is to bring the director's vision to life. Mm. It's our job is to tell, help them tell the story. And it's a really important relationship. You have some directors who, you know, they want to be with you every step of the way. They want to watch you make the cuts, make the edits. And you have others who let you do it and they come in and respond at different times along the way. That's my kind of ideal collaboration is one who lets you do the work, but is there for you when you need them. If you have a question or can you look at this, can we work on this together? But also if you need, if I need an hour to work on a scene, they can step aside and let me do that. It's a, it's a really interesting thing because post-production is something that, that's my least knowledgeable area in film and TV because whenever I've worked on jobs, obviously as a screenwriter as well, like I understand what you do before a script is filmed because you're working on it, you know, developing it. And I've been on set, so like I know what it's like when you're filming something. But obviously the aftermath of that is something I've never really had much involvement in. So I find it really interesting as well. It's a bit like the mirror image of what you do because we have the same conversations that screenwriters that we're talking about structure, we're talking about motivation, we're talking about is a character's arc clear? Are we bringing them in too early? Are we bring them in too late? Does the beginning work? Does the middle work? Is the end too long? That sort of thing, the kind of things you might have as a screenwriter when you're writing the script at the very start, we almost have that mirror conversation at the other side. And there comes a point where for us, the script is no longer needed because what's on the page and what you've shot is a little is different you know mm. things have changed performances have changed the emphasis is in a different place so the actor's gone for a different style than you might have intention you might have had in mind but yeah so it's kind of similar to what you do in many ways but also quite different it's the last rewrite people always say it's the kind of the final rewrite of the film is the edit yeah no definitely it's really interesting well i've got another this is a fun question for you i just wondered what is there any editors in the industry who do you look up to editors like wise oh there's so many so there's people like i look at the guys who do all the blockbusters like bob Doucet, bob did the mummy movies and last jedi and knives out mm-hmm. people That's like a fantastic stuart, film yeah it's great isn't it yeah stuart bear who cuts skyfall superman the omen lethal weapon casino royale um, he's a great editor to look at for action how to cut action scenes i mean he's a good mm-hmm. person to study Michael Kahn, Spielberg, Mark Sanger, who did Gravity, Ron Howard's team, Dan Henley and Mike Hill. Those are great editors. Rick Pearson, who cut Godzilla and Kong Skull Island. I haven't you seen know. them, but I really would like to. They've heard good things, actually. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great. I know some of the Marvel editors as well. They've become really good contacts, really valued contacts that I speak to. So, yeah, just the kind of people who are working at the top of their game. I'm really fortunate to have spoken to some of them in They've kind of given me advice. Lee Smith, for example, 1917, Christopher Nolan's films, Dunkirk, X-Men. Yeah, those are probably my top choices, I would say. Yeah, you're giving us a a great selection there. I can tell how enthusiastic and how into what you do as well, which is really nice to hear. I can geek out about it all the time. I can geek out about (laughs) editing endlessly. But yeah, if you want to look at good editing, look at 
Ron Howard's films, I would say. And, you know, Spielberg, if you want to look at how to... Spielberg's cutting is just effortless. The way he cuts dialogue scenes and the way he cuts action together with Michael Kahn is, is just great. I mean, if you want to understand editing, watch films with the sound off. Oh, wow. Take the sound away, watch how they're cut together, watch the rhythm of the pictures, and you really get a sense of what the editor's doing by taking away the dialogue and the music and all the stuff that goes around that. You know, pick your favourite film, watch it without the sound, that's and see really, what you notice and how it's how it's different. That's really interesting. I know that's no, oh, I might have a look into that to just to see because I, I don't really know enough about editing personally, especially somebody who wants to work in film and and be a filmmaker. I feel like I do need to understand it more. So yeah, I'll definitely do that as well. Well, this is a fun question for you, Connor, and I'm, I apologise because this is a really hard question. But what do you have a favourite film that's edited? Do you have like a favourite film for just purely on an editing basis? One of my favourites is. Rush by Ron Howard. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it, no. It's about the 1976 Formula One racing Mm -hmm. um, World Cup, basically. First thing to say is I know nothing about racing. I don't find it that interesting, to be honest. But as a film, it's the story of James Hunt and Nicky Lauda, who were the kind of fiercest rivals. Taking a note of that so I can watch it sometime. James Hunt was a kind of maverick, Tony Stark, playboy type. So he was like, you know, crazy having parties. And on the racetrack, he was fierce and ferocious, kind of wild. Nicky Lauda, who was his rival, was kind of cold, calculated Austrian, really methodical, really surgical about his work and about the cars. And it's interesting how the editing in the film reflects their characters. So when you see James on screen, the editing is a bit more manic, a bit more chaotic. When it's Nicky's on screen, it's a bit more cold, calculated, still, cameras on the tripod. And there's three kind of major racing sequences in the film, and each of them are cut differently to reflect a different part of the story. So the first sequence is kind of cut to show you how sexy racing is and how cool it is yeah. and how exciting and how dangerous. The second one is when Nicky Lauda, he had a famous car crash that basically almost ruined his, almost killed him. And you get that kind of manic, chaotic energy in that, that race. The final race is when it's all come together. It's the two of them. They built this relationship over the film and it's finally come to a header. And it's all about the relationship between the two in that final chase. So it's not about making it look cool or interesting or fun. It's using editing to reflect the characters and the storytelling and who they are. So that's that's a great example of how editing can tell the story. If you want to, things like Apollo 13, that's another great example of that. Good film. Um, Rush, yeah, I would say. That's, no, that's a really good answer. Thank you for answering that. But something else I just wanted to ask you, and we, I'll ask you, the last question I was asked is obviously about advice, so probably come on to this anyway, but I just sort of wondered like, if you could maybe talk a bit about for the listeners, like the sort of early career path, like how did you go about getting an agent and stuff, and how did you get your, sort of your break as an editor? The thing about agents is it's an investment because it has to be a two-way street. Hmm. So for those who are thinking about getting an agent, I would say look at different agencies, be more targeted in who you speak to. So look at agents who are working with people you like and admire and on the projects you want to work on. So if you want to work in TV drama, look to the agents who do that, who have clients who work in that field. Don't just email 60 agents to try and get a response. Be more targeted in your approach, I would say. They're looking for someone who, ideally you should have a body of work behind you because then they can say, well, this person's done this and he's done that and she's worked on this and she's worked on that. So they've got ammunition basically to sell you to productions and to get you jobs. That is to say, they don't get you jobs, they get you an interview, they get you in the door. Mm-hmm. But it's up to you to get the job yeah. after that. For me, I was quite lucky because my agent, normally they take on a young cinematographer right. to support and sort of champion. And the year they were looking for a young editor. So I kind of fit the bill. So that was, I was very lucky because it's unusual to get an agent quite so early. But I mean, it does happen. It is, you know, so it's something to think about. Be more, yeah. So look at the people who represent people you admire 
and reach out to them. Yeah. So I'm quite fortunate. I mean, I've spoken about doing things like River City and Tracy Beaker. Normally as an editor, you start off as a runner trainee and work your way up to an edit assistant, second assistant, first assistant. I'm fortunate that around the time I was getting started, there was a shortage of editors. So I kind of was able yeah. to fill that gap. Almost get fast-tracked a bit higher. Faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it means that I've been able to say to myself and to sell myself as an editor now, people don't question that. I can say, I've cut this, I've cut that. I've got experience in the chair, is what people say. Mm. But I've got enough credits that I can now continue on that path. I've had thoughts, you know, do I want to be, you know, do the assistant route? I've never actually been an assistant technically, which is kind of, it's just a strange position to be in, but as more and more, it's becoming a more technical job. So it used to be that you would train up as an assistant and become an editor, mm-hmm. but the technical job is so demanding now that it's purely technical and supporting you know, the running of the edit suite and the running of the cutting room. Yeah. So it's changed slightly, but yeah, there's, there's so many different paths to becoming an editor. But I would say if you want to do it, edit as much as possible, even if it's short films or corporate jobs, find a director, find a friend who wants to shoot a film, offer to cut it for them and just get as much experience as you can. That's the same as if you want to be a writer, people to say, you know, you should write. Yeah. If you want to be an editor, it's the same, just cut. Definitely. Learn by doing, don't you? So they, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. I will have you on, Connor. Actually, I really wanted to ask you because I know you're sort of, you're a professional, you're when you're working in the industry, but I like to ask sort of Scottish guests who are working in the industry, how do you feel about Scotland as an industry in general? Right now? Do you think it's going in the right direction? Do you think it's a good place to work? I think it is. There's some really talented people up here. There's a, and a lot of them have gone to London and to America. I think if we want to have an industry, we should give them reasons to stay. Yes. Something um, I'm very, I talk about a lot on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think things like World War Z, when that showed up, there was a big song and dance about it, but they brought their crew with them. Mm-hmm. They imported the crew. The people they hired here were runners and location runners, that sort of thing, kind of admin jobs. We need to you know, champion new talent here. I mean, we, we talk about a French new wave and a, you know, a British new wave in the 60s. I'd love to know what a Scottish new wave is. Yeah. I'd love yeah. to see that. I don't know if it's arrived yet, but I'd love to, first of all, I'd love to be part of it and I'd love to see it as well. I think as well, we need to find, because on things like the short film circuit, you meet people who say, oh, I'm going to make a film, but it's the Scottish Goodfellas or the Scottish Fight Club. But, yeah. you know, that's great. They've, they've made those films. They've done that and they've been successful. Like find your own path, write your own yeah, films. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we're such a rich nation of for story and things. We don't need to be, I think a big problem in Scotland is we tend to take stories and then we make them Scottish, but they only work in Scotland and not anywhere else. I think we need to make stories that are very Scottish, but sell everywhere because, you know, that we are so capable of doing that as a country. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, if you're, if you're a director or a writer, find out what it is you want to say. What's your opinion on politics, science, sex, history? How do you see the world? You know, write that script. Don't write... Tarantino's set in Glasgow or something, you know, yeah. find your own path and find your own voice. And I mean, there's people like John McPhail and Christie and, you know, people have spoken about who are really kind of leading the way. They're the ones that are up and coming and really exciting mm. and are doing extremely well. So we need to see more of that, I think. Absolutely. Um, and I hope we can. So I love the term Scottish New Wave where, you know, I'm going to be using that again. So thank you, Connor. I made that up, by the way. I've never seen it anywhere. Oh, so maybe you'd, you'd yeah. coined this, right? You'd get maybe cr- copyright this right now, right? This has happened. But well, you never know. It, it could it could happen. I mean, I'd love yeah. to see you know a kind of breakthrough film. So let's let's make it. Let's do it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, Connor, something else I just wanted to quickly ask you as well was um, what we sort of ask everyone. What's your like sort of ambition then, like long term and short term? What's like what's your aims? So my long term ambition has always been to edit a film, edit films for the big screen like a Mission Impossible or a Jurassic Park or a Bond or an Avatar. You know, I'm a big believer in the big screen and seeing films that have to be seen 
on in a cinema where it's the best possible sound, best possible picture. You know, the people at the height of their powers, the the best technical people. Things like a film you go and see on a Friday night with your friends or on a Saturday night with your friends. You've got your popcorn, you've got your drink, you've got your nachos, you have a great time, you have a big emotional experience. So many films now, I think, I'm like, I could watch that at home or I could watch that on a plane. Why do I have to see that in the cinema? So I want to see things. People talk about falling in love with cinema because they saw themselves reflected on the screen. For me, it was kind of the opposite. I wanted to see things I'd never seen before. So like places I could never visit, you know, the past or the future, seeing creatures, seeing worlds that I'd never seen before, seeing technology. You know, I'm a big, you know, big fan of CGI movies and, you know, films that are all about spectacle and having that big emotional experience with an audience in the cinema. I've had times where I've seen a short film that I made in the cinema with an audience who doesn't know the film. And that honestly, that feeling when they laugh at the right time or they jump at the right time or they scream at the right time because you've created that moment and the audience responds to it, there's no better feeling. Yeah, special. You know? Yeah, you have those moments, you think that's that's why I do this, that's why I want to make these kind of movies. Short term, it's about just getting my name out there and working as much on as much as I can and as hard as I can, making contacts, always trying to progress, doing something different, shaking things up as much as I yeah. can, not being pigeonholed as one type of editor or one type of TV editor or a film editor. So yeah, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint is what I've heard from people and what I say to people is it's a long-term goal, but you have to work at it. Absolutely. So, no, it's really, really good answers here. Thank you for sharing all this stuff. I really enjoyed it. Just get a real well, we're nearly there, but one of the other questions for you is sort of asking them, what's the worst sort of part-time job you'd ever had to work? Or have you ever had to work a job you sort of just hated? So I don't have any major horror stories, but I'll tell you one. I was on a film set as a runner. The only time I was a runner on a set mm-hmm. and I was getting a tea and coffee or two coffees for the producer and director. So I was carrying the cups and I was walking towards them where they were filming and they shouted, quiet on set, still please, and action. So I had to stand there with these cups, but they were the plastic cups, so the lids popped open. So I was standing there with scalding hot coffee going down my hands like, Fuck. so I just, I just just had to stand there. I should have just went, right, okay, stop. But it was a dialogue scene, so I had to wait until it was finished. And then they started to cut and I just went, you know, my hands were burning. So oh, that's a kind of strange memory, but it's, yeah, that's my. <laughs> that's like, that's you know, my, you were doing it for the art there. You were doing it, for, you know, you put art above yourself on that occasion, I think. I was suffering from for the art, yeah. I never saw the finished film, but I hope it was I hope it was good. <laughs> I hope it was worth the burnt hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But sort of just to round off, Connor, first of all, thank you very, very much for giving us your time to I really enjoyed chatting to you. It's, it's honestly been so interesting for me to just hear some. I love speaking to people who are so passionate about cinema and are just geeking out all the time. It's great for me. I really enjoy it. Good, so good. I think what you'd said is really useful for the listeners, especially anyone who wants to get into cinema or be an editor particularly. So thanks for that. But just to round off, if you could sort of summarize what you've been saying and what would your advice be for anyone who maybe wants to get into the creative industries in general or who wants to be an editor in particular? The big note I would say is take action. Mm -hmm. A lot of people sit around waiting to make films or say they're going to make a film or say they're going to write a novel or write a script at the end of the year. There comes a point where you just have to do it. There comes a point where you can watch as many masterclasses, read as many books, you know, meet as many people, but you have to sit in the chair and do it. That's the only way you'll learn. If you want to be an editor, work on as many films as you can, cut something together, watch it. If it doesn't work, learn from it, make mistakes. You know, that is a that is part of the process. Don't wait to be invited to make films. You should always be proactive. Take charge of your own career. Take charge mm-hmm. of your own path and write your own path. Find your own way. That's that's my kind of, you know, big note. I mean, People always say it's who you know. I mean, that's true. But when I went into the industry, I didn't know a single person. You know, my dad didn't work. 
he wasn't a studio head and my mum wasn't, you know, in the camera department or whatever. I had to make those contacts. I had to find yeah. those people. So you have to be proactive. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. A lot of people are kind of frightened by that, you know, frightened by networking, but that's a part of the process. Everyone goes through that. So don't worry. It will take time. It will take time before you start to see any kind of results, but that's a part of the process. Things like, you know, rejection and failure, that's a part of the process as well. For that, I would just say you have to re- you have to repackage it and see it differently. Don't see it as a failure, just see it as a learning experience yeah. and push on, push ahead. Look after yourself as well. I think more and more we're having conversations about mental health and making sure that you're okay. Don't, you know, don't overwork yourself. Don't Absolutely. have a burnout. Yeah. So yeah, take care of yourself, but also be energized and really go for it because... If you do that, if you take charge, you will see results and you'll absolutely make it. Absolutely. And good luck. If anyone wants to talk about editing or any questions, they can email me, no problem, and chat to me. I'm happy to. I've done it before. I've spoken to people who are kind of on the way up. Only because people have done it for me. People have supported me. So it's only fair I do the same. So I'm absolutely happy to. We'll we'll link all your work in the show notes. We'll link some stuff to you. So you'll be able to find Connor, anyone who's listening. And if, you know, you'll be able to. So thank you for offering that as well, Connor. Thanks for the advice. It's it's so true. And just to quickly touch on the mental health thing you said, I actually this morning have just been to a BECTA mental resilience training course and the industry are really becoming more aware of mental health. And there's a big push in the creative industries to sort of acknowledge people's mental health and look after people. So I think there's a positive change coming there as well. You're right. The more and more I see people who are open about it and it's important, you know, don't bottle it up, you know, speak to, speak to Beck to speak to the film and TV charity, speak to TV mindset. People yeah. are really starting to be open and honest about it because it is affected, especially with lockdown. Yeah. You know, that's a different, maybe a, a different conversation, but people should really not be afraid to, to speak up. Yeah. And it's definitely an easy industry to get burnt out and there's a lot of pressure. So absolutely. Yeah. Speak up and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, Connor, thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciated. It was a joy chatting to you. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jamie. As I said, big fan, and I'm looking forward to the next one as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Just Get A Real Job. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Connor. I'd like to thank him once again for coming on and speaking to us. I really, really enjoyed chatting to him and it was great to find out a bit more about editing, which I didn't really know enough about beforehand. But if you enjoyed what Connor had to say, remember check the links below the podcast to find out a bit more about him and see some of his work. And as always, I'm going to keep harboring on about the things you'd already heard me say in the start and you'd already heard me say in the ad break. But we do need your help to keep growing this podcast. So bear with me as I repeat them one more time. But yeah, if you can help us keep growing the podcast by supporting our Patreon, word of mouth, or by, if you can, leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, all three of those things really do go a long way in helping the podcast to keep growing. And we're very, very grateful for all the support we get. We're very, very grateful that you're even listening to the podcast. So thank you very much for that. Anyway, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well. We'll be back again next week with another episode of Just Get A Real Job. Just get a real job.